0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Leiji from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Mike Adamson, Chief Executive of the British Red Cross. In 2022, their annual income was around 400 million pounds. They employ about 4,000 staff and have 15,000 volunteers. Essentially, it's a huge organization. So, we're going to be taking a close look at their strategic work and also, especially, how they are driving forward collaborative partnerships in what is a fragmented space. And we're going to take a look at trust building as well. Trust is one of those things that sometimes is lacking and can be a little bit of a barrier. To creating really fruitful partnerships uh, and opportunities for collaboration, so we're going to take a look at that and how do we uh, how do we facilitate trust as well. Without further ado, Mike, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today.
1: Thanks so much, Alberto. Great to see you.
0: Well, great to see you, and we're both here in the UK, so no time difference to overcome. You're the chief executive of the uh, British Red Cross. I know it's a household name, but why don't we start by finding out what the British Red Cross is all about?
1: Well, Alberto, that's quite a story. We've been around over 150 years, and the roots of the Red Cross movement are on the battlefield of Battle of Solferino in 1859, where someone we'd now call a social entrepreneur said, called Henri Dunant said, wouldn't it be amazing if in every country in the world there were volunteers ready to provide neutral, impartial help to whoever needs it? And that's led to the Red Cross movement, um, and you've now got 192 Red Cross and Red Crescent societies <clears throat> around the world, um, of which the British Red Cross want, is one, with around uh, 13 million volunteers in total, you know, from El Salvador to China, to Syria, to Ukraine, and here in Britain. And here in Britain, um, we work both domestically and internationally on three big causes. Okay helping people in emergencies, as you'd expect, um, uh, both domestically and internationally, helping people who are displaced, often by those emergencies, but also by other other crises um, and by persecution, and and also then helping people falling between the gaps in the health and social care system here in the UK in the areas of greatest health inequality, and really helping people get back on their feet again so they're not dependent on hospitals and, and so on. So those three big causes, and... The interesting thing about the way in which our strategic thinking has evolved, I think, is that we're very, very practical people um, and real focus on delivery, that face to face moment where a volunteer provides help to somebody who's getting back on their feet again after a flood or having been um, displaced from their home for whatever reason. But now what we recognise is that actually to achieve real impact, we've got to think bigger and more broadly. And we look at impact in two other ways as well. One is through influencing and advocacy. What have we learned through the work we do on the ground? And then the research we conduct around how policy is making people more or less vulnerable. Government policies locally, nationally, internationally. And then thirdly, about how do we convene and collaborate with others? Because people see us as... An enormous organization, but in relation to the scale of unmet need on those three big arenas, we're small. And actually, it's only if we're working with others that we can really um, amplify our impact.
0: Mm. Now, I know that that collaboration bit is really close to your heart as well. And I, I really love to drill into that. Before we do, let me just get a little bit more context. Even though you're one of almost 200 organizations, you're still huge, right? I mean, if I'm not mistaken, your, your budget this year, your income is, what, three four 400 million pounds?
1: Yeah, so it varies from year to year according to the profile of emergencies. And in 2022, we'll turn over uh, well over 400 million pounds because of the amount of money that we've raised from a very generous UK public. Um, and indeed some from the British government for the support to people affected by the Ukraine crisis. Uh, we've raised nearly 180 million in total for that and that supports people in Ukraine in the neighbouring countries and then those people arriving here in the UK as well but in, in even in a, a year without that um, you know we're looking at a turnover of 250 to 300 million. We have 4,000 staff here in the UK and around 15,000 volunteers and the challenge for us Alberta is that you know, we used to think about emergencies in quite a linear way. You know, we have a big emergency uh, that we help people, we raise money, we deploy people to help. Then we we have a rest and we wait for the next one. Now we're in a world where actually the emergencies are simultaneous um, and um, ongoing. And the, the impacts of global emergencies are felt here in the UK. When you think about COVID, you think about the Afghanistan crisis, you think about Ukraine, you think about... Uh, uh, the cost of living crisis; these are all global crises with UK dimensions, um, and we respond both to the UK dimensions and then to the global aspects, as well as then the floods, the fires, and so on that happen in the UK all of the time, anyway.
0: Hmm. So it's a fast-moving treadmill, and you got multiple objects on that treadmill at once.
1: Exactly right, and a lot of the whole juggling, therefore, of the you know the resources and the kind of organisation that we need to be. We need to be, we've always prided ourselves on the ability to mobilise resources for an emergency, but we now need to be far more adaptable and surge um, in different ways and almost organically and flow between these different crises, while also, and I think the challenge for, for many organisations in all sectors is, you, you're also trying to redesign the plane while, while you fly it, because actually new technologies create new opportunities to reach people in different ways, to engage supporters in different ways, to automate back office processes. So all of the time that we're trying to make the difference in this world of simultaneous crises, we're also trying to redesign the organization to be ready for ready for the future. And that's a pretty big challenge. And so, you know, I think you know, that our people, it's really stretching, so it's very stimulating. It's very purposeful, but it's also very stretching. And, um, you know, and, and then you combine that with some of the challenges, which, you know, the very welcome challenge in many ways around everything that we learned from the murder of George Floyd and about our need to be far more inclusive and pay far more attention to diversity and, um, and creating safe working places where people are able to express who they are, be the best version of themselves, that is making us a better organisation, but that's also challenging and takes time for, you know, for a long standing organization to continue to evolve its culture to be the best version of itself so that people can be the best version of themselves within it. So a lot of a lot of change affecting affecting all of us.
0: Well, it's hope the um, the war in Ukraine. is just a. Uh temporary and that you don't need to have this increased budget year after year and that we hopefully start seeing the the conclusion of this but uh, on, a, on a UK front one of the bits that you touched on was about assisting those who maybe are falling through the cracks in the, in the health system and let me ask you about that because here in the UK with the NHS the, the National Health Service for anybody who's based here you'd know but if you're not uh, anything from industrial action to ambulances that don't show up to hospitals that are stretched to capacity to patients not being able to get into the emergency room because they're stuck waiting in an ambulance for hours how would you characterize the current state of affairs here in the uk and how it's impacting those folks who who you're serving here
1: in the uk yeah well i mean the, the space we work in is a space between hospital homes so the fastest growing part of our work is actually with uh we call high intensity users of emergency departments accident emergency departments where you'll have people turning up multiple times a year even up to 300 times a year Um, and of course they don't need an A&E doctor or consultant what they actually need is help addressing some of the other issues in their lives it might be to do with mental health drug and alcohol problems access to benefits and so on and so a lot of the work that we're doing is around how do you prevent unnecessary admissions to hospital and then how do you support people to get out of hospital and back on their feet again? Um, and some of that across different age groups, a lot of the people turning up in AE, maybe from younger age groups. But a lot of the people who are waiting for a discharge from hospital um, are frail elderly people. And 70% of the resources of the NHS goes towards supporting frail elderly people with multiple conditions. And therefore, it's all about how our volunteers and staff get alongside them, help them feel safe at home and get the connections that they need. Um, And the challenge I think for the NHS, which we're all very, very proud of in terms of credible work it does, is actually that with an aging population um, and 70% of these resources tied up or supporting frail elderly people, actually it's all about the connections with the community, with social care, um, and how we help people be resilient for longer, feel safer at home, be connected into local services, feel able to get out and go on, get on the bus, a whole bunch of things around how we help people look after themselves in order to reduce, which is good for them, and then reduces the unnecessary use of unnecessary visits to GPs, uh, general practitioners, unnecessary visits to hospital, unnecessary time in hospital. There is a win-win there around helping people to look after themselves and then reducing the demands on the NHS. must be quite busy time though for you, right?
0: No, it's huge.
1: And the challenge is sometimes around fragmentation of the system. Got a lot of different actors in the system with, you know, hospitals, with community trusts, with uh, community nursing teams, with social care. And, um, you know, there's some very moving moments. One of the guys who we supported turned up, been to an A&E department close to 300 times in one year, a chap called Graham. Um, you know, what we were able to do was to get alongside him, win his confidence, find out more about what the situation was at home. And that takes time itself that he would, you know, the willingness to accept help. And as a result of that, understanding the mental health challenges he had, the other issues, of chaotic administration, how paying his bills... Access to benefits and so on. Through doing that, we were able to um, enable him to feel better. But also in the following year, he only, I think he went to the GP once and he went to the AE department once. Now, you think about the benefits for him in terms of sense of agency, but also the benefits for the NHS in terms of reduced demand on their resources. Um, and getting, you know, it's all about the right help in the right place at the right time. And it's all about those personal relationships. Yeah.
0: You mentioned quite a fragmented system, and earlier we touched on collaboration, and I know also in a previous conversation you and I had looking at efficiencies or even inefficiencies within the broader space. Um, where do we start when we talk about collaboration in, in your world?
1: Yeah, well, a lot of our insight into this and the reason that we've developed this three strands of our strategy around how we achieve impact, which includes convening collaboration, is the learning from the... A uh, terrible fire that some of your listeners will remember at Grenfell, uh, where 72 people died. And, you know, we're very proud of the way that we responded alongside the emergency services, you know, in the, you know running volunteers in a rest centre from two or three o'clock in the morning, providing help at community level. But I think what we also recognised over the days and weeks that followed is that lots of local organisations, the mosques, the churches, the local youth groups, they also opened their doors from... Yeah, the early hours of that uh, terrible Wednesday morning. Um, and um they'd never been involved in an emergency response before. They didn't see themselves as emergency responders. And actually, that's the same thing as would happen in a big earthquake or a flood or something around the world as well. The first responders of the local community. When you start to realize that, then you start to realize actually this is a system. So emergencies are often about command and control, you know, who's in charge, one decision maker, so on. But actually, very quickly, about a system of local actors, local and national actors, and how they come together. And how do we make it more likely that actually the response will be coordinated, particularly in the days and weeks that follow. And through doing that, we recognise that we need to be much more humble about who we are, and work much more, put much more effort into how we collaborate with others to create the possibility of better outcomes when these emergencies happen. And so one of the things that we've done coming out of that, for example, is created um, a thing called the Voluntary and Community Sector Emergency Partnership, which now has got 250 organisations, most of, about 70% of which are local organisations coming together, committed to capability building um, in emergency response. You know, as someone said, you know, making friends before we need them in an emergency. So we know what to do and where to um, go. And we've seen the the Fruits of that in the COVID response, where actually we were able to share information um, and um, coordinate response so that more of the right help got to the right place at the right time. And the places that had been forgotten, you know, more help went to them. And actually, um, and then where we were duplicating, you know, we were able to address that. So you start to see it, see that. And then in between the big emergencies, you know, we then invest in capability building. So we've run sessions with the 250 organizations around what to do in a heat wave you know what to do in floods and this is all about preparing for the things that may then happen making it more likely we're able to respond what we've then also done is extended that thinking into the other sectors that we work in so in the refugee sector for example um you know there are more than 1500 organizations when you look on the charity commission website if you do a search on the word refugee there's more than 1500 organisations which organisations with the word refugee in their title. And, and there are many more beyond that and local diaspora organisations and so on that are re- working in this sector. And actually, the, the question is, how do we enable the whole to be greater than the sum of the parts? How do we ensure that the overlaps are being managed and that the gaps are being spotted? And also, how do we ensure that we are a visible and effective partner to government when you've got that kind of fragmentation? So again, we've invested in hosting Uh, thing we call the Asylum Reform Initiative, where a number of organisations have come together to collaborate around a shared agenda, around sharing learning and insight about what could improve outcomes for refugees and asylum seekers, and how do we come together to communicate well to the British public in what is actually quite a toxic debate about immigration, uh, in which refugees and asylum seekers get caught up, and of course the worries about small boats and everything that's happening at the moment with government. And again, we've built a coalition of 250 organisations um, called Together with Refugees that are forming common cause on these issues, making it easier to articulate key messages and and therefore being more effective as a partner to government. So again, it's very difficult for government. To be fair to fair to, fair to them, in when they see this very fragmented sector, be it in the emergency response or in uh, you know, refugee and asylum seeking. And actually, who, who are they supposed to engage with? We want to make that easier and be much more propositional about what will work uh, by having invested some time in how we come together. And then in terms of the health and social care sector, also very fragmented. And we've made, if I'm honest, I think we've made less progress in how we work collaboratively on an agenda there. We work well with the NHS, but actually there's fragmentation between the NHS itself Um, hospitals community trusts social care in local authorities the voluntary sector and there's quite effective working locally but it's inconsistent and the challenges in all of these arenas whether it's around health and social care refugees or emergencies is how do you create the conditions for greater collaboration Um, how do we how do we all start to recognize that the whole is less than some of the parts, and we may have organisations that are individually excellent, but that collectively we're underperforming. You know we'll often have, and you look at the wider sector, we'll often have similar vision statements around end homelessness, or ensure everyone gets some mental health support they need, or a fair deal for refugees, whatever whatever it is. But actually, and we have individually excellent organisations working on those agendas but how well are we actually working collectively and could we say that we're collectively excellent my hypothesis is that actually we're not and we've got to start to realize there's a gap between what we are doing and what we could be doing if we really thought differently and collaboratively about that and that's a real challenge for the kind of leaders leadership that we need um and i sometimes characterize it a lot of this think again when I look back through my career when I worked in health and social care you know I worked in the NHS for a period yeah there are I sometimes characterize as th- almost three levels um this is a great crass simplification in some ways there's, a, there's a, a, um, a level at which you don't collaborate at all um you just cannot do your individual things and whatever there's a second level at which leaders do get together uh, be it locally or nationally on a shared agenda but what they actually do is they share information. Probably very stimulating as well because we all enjoy meeting our peers and great people. Um, We share information, but we don't fundamentally do anything different as a result. We're better informed about what others are doing, but it doesn't really change what we're about in terms of our collective agenda. Um, And then the third level is when we really start to work collectively. We start to really think about how our combined resources if applied through our individual organisations, but to a collective purpose, how we could actually you know, change the world um, locally, nationally, internationally, and I think that is the the challenge, and that that takes time and and particular orientation of leadership. Um, so on,
0: on that specific point about creating the right conditions for collaboration and leadership, and. And the collaborations you've described—they're multifaceted. You have some which I, which I'm gleaning from what you're telling me here, are about engaging with those local partners during a time of need. Others might be thematic around refugees or care, various other things. Others have to do with policymakers engaging with government. And so, so tell me, you as a chief executive and having an organization with four thousand employees, what? If, if we could, some way, in a succinct manner, what does the collaborative uh, collaboration creative process look like with all of these different uh, moving pieces? Is there a person that's a sort of chief strategy officer for collaboration? What does that look like inside the British Red Cross?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, and um, I think a lot of it is emergent, you know, that it's, it's intentional, but it's emergent because, and that's why it's about, and this, you know, that great Sheryl Sandberg phrase of, you know, leaning in, it's about groups of leaders, be they locally or nationally um, or indeed internationally, leaning in to some shared outcomes where you're not quite sure what they'll be. It's not a linear planning process. It's actually saying there is something bigger to play for here. And we are going to under, you know, take the time to understand about en- enough about each other And our personal journeys and drivers, but also about the organisations, their histories and priorities and budget constraints and what have you, to actually really start to say, we want to change the world for refugees and asylum seekers here in the UK, or we want to um, uh, ensure a much more resilient nation for the emergencies that are gonna affect it in the years to come, because we're gonna have more, far more emergencies in, in, in the UK. And the same plays out internationally in this, you know, the work we do in Ukraine, for example, but just keeping it closer to home for now. And the it takes place emergently over time with people who are willing to lean in and with a framing that is then starts to be articulated and captured over time. So in the case of the, the work around UK emergencies, for example, we've got as far as a formal partnership agreements between us all, the 250 organisations. In the case of the refugee work, we haven't got yet as far as a partnership agreement. What do we expect of each other? What are we prepared to put into play the sacrifice of ourselves in order to enable the greater greater good? And so this requires, I think, leadership, leaders with real insight with a real belief in the fact that we'll we'll, we'll be achieved more together, um, some insight into the system dynamics of not only the people in the room but the other actors that affect the outcomes. That could be to do with government policies or it could be, I don't know, the local economy, the private sector and the way in which it is or isn't open to employing refugees or asylum seekers or, or whatever it is. Um, it requires a presumption of goodwill, you know, that when somebody – says something that appears disagreeable (laughs) that you start you find try and find out why has that come out you know what is it that is in their journey that explains that so it requires patience um and um and resilience to kind of see this this thing through um and so and it requires an action orientation because by definition you're working across the gaps you've got to have people who are ready. To take responsibility for some things, even though they could say that this is not definitively my organisation's responsibility either geographically or thematically, but actually we can't find a fair deal for refugees unless we all work differently and persuade others to work work differently, or on yeah, you and know, or in terms of people who are being discharged from hospital and then not getting the support they need, that might be to do with social care, could be to do with mental health needs, could be to do with Admin, you know uh, financial admin personal financial Administration you've got to be prepared to be curious about what are the issues that affect the outcomes for the people we're trying to help and then have an action orientation around doing something about it and I think one of the unexplored areas of this is what are the implications for boards because although our board has signed up to this three-pronged strategy about how we achieve impact I don't often get asked, in fact, about how much time am I putting into this working across the system? How are we? How are we assessing whether we're being impactful um, in terms of this system working? Who's which organization's success is it? In fact, so one simple example of that is that we on um, we also yeah you know, we were very pleased to play a part with um St John Ambulance and British Heart Foundation in getting first aid onto the school curriculum um but whose success was it we've um and if equally if we hadn't succeeded whose failure would it have been um and how should the board assess my performance even against that simple example um yeah maybe it was all St John's and British Heart Foundation and I you know we just talked a good game. Um you know, <laughs> and I, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's you know, actually it's hard to attribute credit. And um and then, you know, there's that old saying, isn't it? Success has many success has many parents, uh, failure is an orphan. And um when you're in the system world of collaboration, then you know, those issues are very real. how does a board assess uh, particularly when you've got hard pressed budgets, how does a board assess performance when you're working on these kinds of issues in this kind of way?
0: Now, besides having a, a big heart, a can-do attitude, um, why, eyes wide open to, to detect dots that are worth connecting, collaborative partnerships that are worth connecting, presumably you also have some learnings, right, from, for instance, these 250 organizations together uh, for refugees. What's worked there and how it's worked and how it's unfolded could serve as a useful template for, for other thematic uh, groupings of stakeholders.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the first prerequisite is curiosity. You've got to be curious about those adjacencies and those gaps and how the whole could be greater than some of the parts. So that is an absolute um, e thing. And then it is about patience. This is not patience and persistence. This is not built instantly. And so, in the uh, that emergency partnership, in particular, to, and to some extent, in the together with refugees partnership, um, there was a lot of suspicion in the early days of, particularly of, of by small organisations of large of large organisations like us, that somehow our intentions were predatory rather than genuinely collaborative, um, and you, that takes time to build trust, and you make missteps um and do things that you know you know misjudge a a move that we make or whatever or and in whatever way and therefore humility and the willingness to say sorry we got that wrong um is is key and then in those collaborations it's about a parity of esteem to use that phrase from mental health parity of esteem between small and large and that each can challenge the other i remember in one of them i won't say which that with my co-chair i felt that i'd been blindsided on something in a big strategic meeting and i you know had to ride with it otherwise we looked look like we're not joined up in the work that we're doing with the what with the wider grouping including people we're trying to attract support from but then afterwards picking up the phone and saying look that really well, that was a problem for me because I couldn't say what I thought, um, and we hadn't talked about it first. Um, so that whole willingness to have frank conversations that, that presume goodwill, I knew there was nothing, I knew I was, th- there was no attempt to deliberately undermine me in it, but actually, but it was a clumsy moment. And um, so all of these, its you've got to constantly work at it. It's constant gardening, to use that phrase that's sometimes mm-hmm. used. I mean that is well you touched on
0: many good points but the one you're referencing about perhaps being perceived as predatory by smaller organizations um I've heard that time and time again by different CEOs of smaller outfits whether it's regards to uh, well again I'm not going to name who but you know the big the big uh, international organizations that have big brands and uh, and it must be difficult to to foster that trust right and and gradually get people uh to think that yeah maybe maybe it's not
1: predatory, maybe it's actually collaborative uh, at its core. That's right. And I mean I think yeah, I think it's, that's about behaviors and and humility and a belief that um, actually you know different parties genuinely bring different strengths, you know to the mix. And then yeah, a little bit of cash flowing through the system also helps because one of the things that does strike me is that when you've got you know that there are successful collaborations out there particularly when new vehicles are corrected sorry new vehicles are created in which there is new investment new flow for new staff new resources some of what we're trying to do is within the existing financial envelopes to get get organizations to work differently and that's I think much harder than when you've got big new sl- slab of money but even within these partnerships we have have had a flow of small amounts of money through the system that I think has helped again some of the smaller organizations see there's something in it for them financially as well as then um, you know spending their time and expertise on this and again that just that just helps.
0: Mm. Let me ask you if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking mm, I'd like to be one of those 15,000 volunteers <laughs> uh, where do they go? Where do they go? How do you start, though?
1: Well, they they go onto our website and take a look at what the volunteering opportunities are, and um, we're particularly we are particularly looking for volunteers in emergency response at the moment because we know that we need to strengthen uh, that area of our work. You know, the UK emergency scene is completely different to what it was pre twenty seventeen in terms of the number and complexity of emergencies, and when you look at the impact of climate change on the likelihoods of flooding and heat waves and so on, as we've seen in the last couple of years, it's only going to get worse. So we're going to need more more volunteers to support that work.
0: Great, great.
1: And in terms of your personal journey, how did
0: you end up where you are today? I mean, it's, uh, it's a remarkable job. It's a huge organization, amazing brand, um, a lot of moving yeah. pieces.
1: Well, I've always I've always believed in social purpose, Alberto, and that kind of has always informed me. But my career started in the commercial sector, And um, I was a management consultant uh, doing commercial work, but I did a mix of UK and uh, international work, including some development work. And that kind of got me curious about how I could make more of an impact. And I, you know, made the first move out of that world. And at the time, I get very well paid now, but I took a big pay cut at the time to move out of that world into the Red Cross for the first time. Did UK and international work for about ten years. Then I left. And I went to work in the National Health Service for three years um, as a director in, you know, what you'd now call an international care uh, integrated care board, um, which a uh, primary care trust at the time did that for a few years, and then came out again back into the set the not for profit sector around disability and deafness. Again, learned massively around, you know, uh, issues around exclusion and again about our organisations across a sector not working together well enough, the whole being so much less than some of the parts. And then they came back to the Red Cross initially as managing director and then as CEO. So um yeah, so I've I've I really value people coming into our organizations with that mix of sector experience because we've all we can all learn from each other. And we need some of those private sector disciplines you know in some of our organizations to really continue to sharpen us up um and um but it's our world is tougher in many ways because how do you assess whether we're successful you can't just go and look at the profit and loss statements. yeah how you measure social impact i think so there's in some ways there's more intellectual challenge in how you develop and assess performance that's
0: that's the part part two of the episode but you touched on something that i think is really really important which is that uh that bringing together of private sector and not-for-profit sector and viewing these two also as really useful collaborations because I know within both sectors, and I, I have experience working in both, there is a lot of uh, skepticism about the other, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's there from is. the not-for-profit and the private and vice versa. Uh, and I think the, the quicker that can, can those barriers can be brought down, the, the better. Here's a question for you. If uh, Is there one key thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind, a key takeaway uh, that you'd love them to, uh, to remember after they finish
1: listening to today's show? For me, it is about curiosity. You have to be curious about how things could be better. And that is a responsibility of all of us at every level. And the willingness to take some action arising from the insights that come from your curiosity. So we keep the system moving you know, the the progress being made and we unfreeze some patterns of working and behavior that get in the way of really transformational outcomes. So for me, curiosity is a responsibility and action arising from it is a responsibility for all of us. I love it.
0: And you know, that curiosity, that learning journey never ends.
1: Exactly right. And it's what keeps us all young.
0: (laughs) Exactly right. Thanks so very much. Thank you for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, seeing you again and also learning more about your work. And here's to continued success uh, in 2023.
1: Thanks so much, Alberto. I really enjoyed it.
0: Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Mike Adamson, Chief Executive of the British Red Cross. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's show for you. I hope you found it as informative as I did. And for information about this conversation and more than 200 interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L I D J I.org. Thanks ever so much, and I'll catch you on Monday.